Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. For much of the 1990s and 2000s, the prevailing theory about globalization was that the ever-tightening integration of economies around the world was both largely benign and would reduce conflict among nations. Globalization was also presumed to have a flattening effect. That is, power in a globalized world would be more diffuse and less centralized around just one or two actors. In a groundbreaking 2019 academic paper published in the journal International Security, Henry Farrell and Abraham Newman pushed back against that idea. The paper was titled Weaponized Interdependence. And in that paper, they show how the process of economic integration, basically the networking of the world, has in fact created centralized hubs. And the country that controls those hubs can exploit that control to pursue their foreign policy goals. In practice, they show how the United States has used its central position in both the global financial system and the architecture of the internet to compel foreign adversaries. The paper is novel and fascinating and offers a new lens with which to understand globalization and geopolitics. The paper was so well-received that it was turned into a book, and that book was published in February. And in the book, several authors build upon the idea of weaponized interdependence, adding their own perspective on the theory. The editor of that book, which is titled The Uses and Abuses of Weaponized Interdependence, is Daniel Dresner, and he is my guest today. Daniel Dresner is a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and a contributing editor at the Washington Post. We kick off with a few key definitions, including what we mean by weaponized interdependence, and then we discuss how this concept has been applied in practice, chiefly by the United States. And we, of course, discuss what this concept means or suggests for competition between the United States and China. This is a fascinating conversation that even if you're not an international relations theory nerd like me, uh, you will still, I think, find profoundly interesting. The book was published by Brookings Press, and I'll post a link to it in the show notes of this episode. For now, here is my conversation with Daniel Dresner. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I would define weaponized interdependence, uh, which I, I literally say in the introduction, as a condition under which an actor can take advantage of its position in some sort of embedded network uh, that crosses borders uh, to gain a bargaining advantage over others uh, within the system. So this network might take the form of uh, financial flows. It might take the form of um, internet, you know, routers and internet connections. It might take the form of of, of physical infrastructure, or it might be ideational. Um, but the idea is that there is a network structure. That network structure is somewhat resistant to change, which means that actors that are in central nodes uh, can exploit their centrality. And there are, I think, two further concepts that are required to understand how you know interdependence can be weaponized, can, how you can mm-hmm. sort of compel other actors to do something based on one's position within the network. And the first of those terms is uh, the panopticon, uh, which yeah. I will freely admit I did not encounter in, in graduate school, but encountered in the first several pages of your introduction to the book. So <laughs> looked it up and it's a concept derived from philosophy. Yes. Uh, and And the idea, I think based on like, how one might construct a prison in which the prisoners are unaware they're being watched, but only a single guard need be on guard? Basically, yes. So the way to think about the Panopticon, first of all, I, you know, the Panopticon is the one thing that manages to unite Jeremy Bentham and Michel Foucault. So, you know, you got to love any sort of concept that can bring together hardcore utilitarians and postmodernists. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of the Panopticon is that it is an all-seeing device. Um, and presumably, within the context of weaponized interdependence, the panopticon effect is that if you were at a central node, it gives you access, presumably, to intelligence that no other actor would potentially um, possess in full. And so it allows one to engage in surveillance um, and potentially espionage, and which would presumably also give that actor a leg up in any kind of uh, attempted statecraft. The obvious example that that Farrell and Newman give, which I think is a, a fair one, um, was the revelations that uh, that the NSA had engaged in surveillance um, of uh, not just adversaries but allies because of uh, the internet. I think an even older example, which came out um, after we essentially did the the bulk of the work on the volume uh, that the Washington Post reported on last year, was the fact that as it turns out, the primary manufacturer of diplomatic signals equipment during the Cold War um, that was used by Iran and other U.S. adversaries, as it turns out, was a CIA front, Hmm. which therefore gave the CIA access to all kinds of diplomatic traffic that they otherwise wouldn't have had access to. So basically, you know, you have that leg up in and in any negotiations or any sort of international dealings because you have the ability to spy uh, on on foreign adversaries. And uh, the U.S. has like an outsized ability to exploit this panopticon effect because like the architecture of the internet uh, is mm-hmm. such that a, like a lot of stuff just is comes through the United States, like a lot of internet traffic and a lot of internet architecture is just hubbed in the United States. So at some point, you know, internet traffic, a lot of it comes under us jurisdiction. True. And that's also true. I would add of the international financial system because of the central role of the dollar. Mm-hmm in terms of of global capital markets. Something that Farrell and Newman talk about as well, which is something that appears also in the book, is that to some extent, the extent of the panopticon effect is also at least partially a function of 
domestic laws and institutions, which is to say, to what extent are state actors actually allowed to um, use the panopticon, as it were? Um, there are other, you know, jurisdictions, for example, that in theory um, might be able to do something similar if they were the center of a network, like let's say the European Union. Um, but the EU's uh, laws actually make it very difficult uh, for them to engage in a similar kind of uh, panopticon effect. So this is also at least in part a function um, of domestic institutions. But in some ways, the U.S. is far and away ha has traditionally far far and away been the actor. Um, that has been able to exploit the panopticon effect the most because most of the sort of key economic networks that we think about, um, you know, have the epicenter in the United States. And a second concept that I think is required to understand how interdependence can be used as a means of compellence is uh, the choke point. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain what's meant by by choke point? Yes. So, you know, if you think of a network as a way in which, you know, presumably goods and services and or ideas flow from from any one point in the network to any other point in the network, if you operate a central hub of the network, very often, it, in, and I should point out here that in context, a lot of the sort of initial work on globalization, particularly in the 90s and the, and the 2000s, um, was premised on the notion that, that globalization flattened networks. That uh, or it flattened uh, um, uh, the sort of you know ability to control networks. Um, I think it was John Perry Barlow who once described the internet as you know or anyone who tries to uh, to censor any information on the internet as basically the same thing along the lines of of you know the internet finds a way to route around it. Um, as it turns out, that's not necessarily how most networks operate. Um, most networks operate with an ever increasing amount of centrality. Um, and so therefore, if you occupy the central node and you actually have the ability to cut off particular flows, whether it's financial flows, flows of goods or flows of information, um, then you are essentially, it gives you a, an additional tool of economic uh, coercion. And so this is where the sort of concept of weaponized interdependence really starts to, to intersect or overlap with the large literature on sanctions. Um, and in some ways, you know, using the choke point effect is another kind of economic sanction, but it has particular properties that make it much more attractive um, to a possible sender, namely the United States, than more traditional uh, sort of, you know, trade embargoes and the like, because since these networks are very difficult to alter over time, it means that the blowback from them using them in the first place is less for the sender. Mm -hmm. And so this is a big deal because there traditionally have been a lot of constraints or, or checks on why a country that would think about sanctioning would choose not to do so in many instances. Namely, they don't want to punish their allies too much because they worry about the, the risk of fallout. If these networks are pretty resilient and it's hard for an ally to find an alternative way of getting around them, then suddenly that constraint on sanctioning allies in particular starts to go down somewhat. Mm -hmm. And and the, I guess, quintessential example and one that's cited in, in the paper and the book often is the decision by the United States to prevent Iranian access to uh, SWIFT, which is like this right. 
international way in which banks talk to each other and send monies to each other. You know, anyone who's like received wires from overbroad abroad needs to, you know, enter in their SWIFT number to the, the receiver just so they can get, get the money. And this is the node. This is one of the nodes in which the United States can exert a, a choke point. Can you, I just kind of like describe what the United States did regarding Iran with SWIFT to compel them to get to the negotiating table in the first place? Right. So there were two steps, essentially, on this. And it's important to, to note the distinction. The first is, is that during um, the negotiations over the Iranian nuclear deal prior to that, um, the Obama administration, with the support of the European Union, um, convinced SWIFT, um, for reasons of financial integrity, to essentially delist the Iranian central bank uh, from SWIFT. And since Essentially, SWIFT is the dominant network through which banks exchange um, uh, exchange in payments and settlements. It meant that essentially this cut Iran off um, from a lot of the international financial system. And it was noteworthy because, you know, prior to the, the administration doing this, the Iranians actually were pretty blasé about the idea of additional sanctions because their argument was, look, we've lived under sanctions since 1979. What are you going to do to us now? except that this one actually bit a lot more, I think, than the Iranians expected it to. Um, and there were also sort of uh, uh, additional sort of uh, penumbras from the sanctions that they were surprised by. For example, among other things, the Iranians had difficulty um, procuring shipping for their oil uh, because Lloyd's of London, which was uh, the principal insurer for any kind of shipping, uh, any kind of shipping line, refused to get involved because of the sanctions. So as a result, these sanctions bit a lot more than I believe the Iranians ever expected. And it was very clear from their behavior in the negotiations up into and including the, uh, you know, uh, once the Iranian nuclear deal was reached, that uh, their concern was the, the stranglehold that the sanctions were imposing on the Iranian economy, because the Iranian economy is fueled by exports. And uh, anything that makes it that much more difficult to export for them um, puts a crimp in their relationship, uh, puts a crimp in their economy. And so the second stage, however, and this is the the interesting, even more interesting, is what the Trump administration did when it came to power, which is it obviously did not like the JCPOA. It did not uh, trust the Iranians to comply with it. Um, and after two years, decided to withdraw from the JCPOA, JCPOA and reimpose sanctions. This is where things get interesting, because here what the United States did was uh, again put pressure on SWIFT to uh, essentially not do have any dealings with the Iranian Central Bank. However, this time the European Union um, and European Union governments opposed this bitterly. And you would have expected SWIFT to maybe comply with the Europeans because SWIFT is actually based in Brussels. So geographically, they are under the jurisdiction. It's a, it's a nonprofit in theory under the jurisdiction of the European Union. However, because SWIFT obviously has to deal with dollars um, and because those were more important in terms of uh, what SWIFT did, in the end, SWIFT does go along with the U.S. order, um, which means that essentially the sanctions got reimposed much as they were prior to the signing of the JCPOA. Now, that didn't lead to any additional Iranian concessions. Indeed, you could argue it's, it's led to them to accelerate their nuclear program. But it is striking the degree to which um, the administration was able um, to impose significant economic punishments on the Iranian uh, mm-hmm. regime. And what's sort of further interesting to me is that in response to this, um, the Europeans decided to set up their own sort of competitor to SWIFT in which they could, you know, you know, do financial transactions outside the sort of you know, jurisdiction of, of U.S. sanctions. 
Yes. So they set up something called Instex, which was, in theory, a payments and settlement system that did not necessarily need to rely on the U.S. dollar. Um, The significance of Instex is an interesting one, interesting question, and I think it's it's a subject of some debate. Um, There is no denying that the fact that the Europeans even did this in the first place does represent a sort of, you know, challenge, at least in theory, to U.S. financial hegemony. If you look in practice, though, Instex didn't really amount to much in the end, which is part of the reason the Iranians decided to um, accelerate their nuclear program. And, and part of this was was that is essentially the uh, Instex in some ways functioned almost like the Indian Hawala system of finance um, in terms of money not actually moving between Iran and Europe, but rather there's sort of being two mutual sets of, of uh uh, exchanges and with the hope that it would sort of balance out. Um, and so it, it simultaneously does represent a, a formal challenge to what the United States did. But in practice, I don't think it amounted to much. And I think that's what's also interesting. It, it does reveal, though, one idea that's recurring throughout the book, which is, you know, that when these sort of means of, of compellence, when interdependence is weaponized by, say, the United States, it causes other countries to want to reconsider the centrality of the United States or whoever's like wielding the the power at the moment um, to try to create sort of separate networks uh, and therefore right. But this is yeah. and and this is the challenge, however, and this is why weaponized interdependence is potentially a, a, such a potent tool of statecraft, which is it's not easy to disengage from those networks. And in some ways, that's the lesson, I think, from Instex, which is the Europeans have done it. And so that in and of itself is an interesting challenge. But the substantive effect of it was not all that great, which also shows the difficulty in terms of trying to wean oneself from the centrality of the United States in terms of global capital markets. That concept also gives me or gave me a new lens uh, in which to sort of view things like the Belt and Road Initiative in China or China's um, desire to get Huawei as the 5G option around the world. I mean, initially, I I sort of thought of it as China wanting to have their ability to to spy on people if they wanted to, to weaponize their, their 5G against their adversaries. But if you think about it in sort of a longer term game, what they're trying to do in a way is create networks outside of the United States and to create like the hubs of the spokes leading to mm-hmm. say Beijing as opposed to, to Washington. That's absolutely correct. And that's one of the reasons why I think people inside the Beltway are so exercised about both uh, BRI and uh, Huawei's role in 5G. Also, even things that seem at first glance, you know, truly trivial, things like TikTok, for example. Um, and it's it's in some ways, it's been, it's legitimately interesting to see the, the sort of uh, the reaction inside the Beltway because it's this extreme concern that you are seeing the development of sort of networks that would be vulnerable to weaponized interdependence by China without, let's say, um, much in the way of awareness that any look at the sort of history of weaponized interdependence over the last century reveals that it is the United States that has far and away uh, been the primary user and primary abuser, frankly, of these networks. And I guess that leads me to, to kind of a question of how do you see the Biden administration going forward using, um, say, financial sanctions or other, you know, means of, say, you know, espionage using the internet um, to advance its its foreign policy goals. I mean, 
So a few weeks ago, I had a expert from Human Rights Watch uh, mm-hmm. on the show to discuss a situation in Myanmar. And, you know, the upshot of his of his recommendations of what the U.S. should do is to impose financial sanctions, cut off um, the Tatmadaw, the um, you know, Burmese military that yeah. did the coup from the global financial system. And that will sort of bring them back to the table. Reading your book and, and reading like the, the chapters in the book kind of made me think about you know, the broader implications of that. On the one hand, yeah, that's like an easy and powerful tool to wield. Um, on the other hand, you know, every time you wield that tool, it lessens its its potency to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, like, what are the circumstances under the which the United States should wield that tool? I mean, I'm, you know, kind of a, a progressive more than I'm a liberal. So I'm like, sure, restoring democracy in a place is a good way to, um, to, to wield that tool. But are there certain, I guess, frameworks that the Biden administration ought to consider when wielding a tool like that? Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. So I would say a, a few things on this. The first is, and here I will give credit to the Biden administration, and as I'm sure you're aware, and I'm sure your listeners are aware, they've already published an interim uh, guidance to national security, um, which came out, I think, I want to say like March 1st or something. Um, and it's not a full-blown national security strategy, but it, it's clearly the draft of one. And for them to do this within, you know, six weeks of being inaugurated is is rather extraordinary, frankly. Um, Because that's not normally what you see. And if you read that, they're pretty clear and pretty explicit in there and saying that, you know, they they are disdaining, obviously, the the sort of use of military force. But economic statecraft is front and center for them. Um, So I actually suspect you are going to see a continued reliance on financial statecraft, Um, because compared to other forms of, of other coercive tools, it seems very attractive and it seems also weirdly bloodless, which I don't necessarily think it is, but it does seem bloodless um, because you're not bombing people. You're just freezing the assets, presumably, of, of leaders or um, people you don't like. Uh, so that's one element of it. A second element, and this is more on the defensive side of things, is that I also think you're seeing the Biden administration, and they, I think he issued an executive order to this effect, um, studying in serious detail, essentially, to what extent the U.S. is vulnerable to disruptions in global supply chains. And, uh, you know, particularly in sort of key areas of manufacturing. Um, And this is an area where I think you are beginning to see the United States starting to think of itself more as a possible target rather than as a possible sanctioner. Um, And that's interesting Um, and also potentially justified, although I do think and, and, you know, if you've read the editor volume, you know, um, I, I think one of the sometimes the concept of weaponized interdependence is sort of bandied about without it actually being something that is happening. But nonetheless, um, I think the Biden administration, where it's just, you know, in some ways has sort of taken the sort of nascent and in many ways confused ideas from the Trump administration when it comes to this topic and actually put them into greater focus, which is I don't think Biden wants to sanction as much as Trump does, but I think the administration is going to rely on sanctions as their primary sort of coercive tool. But also you're going to see much more um, serious investment in the idea of defending against weaponized interdependence by others, namely China. Mm-hmm. I guess going forward, like what are there any sort of inflection points you'll be looking towards in the future or any key decisions or, or any kind of world events that will suggest to you like what the next iteration of weaponized interdependence might look like? 
So I think the biggest question is going to be going forward, do you start seeing other countries with similar kinds of abilities to engage in weaponized interdependence as the United States? Um, and if you read the edited volume, and, and I, I, this is a great opportunity for me to thank all of the contributors who, who really, I, the, the highest compliment I can pay my contributors to the, or, or contributors to this volume is that this was possibly the easiest job I've ever had editing <laughs> anything. And anyone who's had to ever edit a book knows that that is not a, a that is a remarkable sentence to say. Um, but, but one of the striking things about um, other countries' efforts of weaponized interdependence, and particularly um, state actors, is that weirdly, weaponized interdependence almost has to be a sort of accident, I think, for it to really achieve full potency. And by that, I mean that in in the U.S. case, for both the Internet and um, financial flows, there was a long time in which those networks existed without the U.S. acting or exploiting weaponized interdependence before it then began to see the statecraft advantages of it. And it was really know, like September 11th, if I recall, um, was the and, and sort of anti-money laundering uh, yeah. that the U.S. started to use the the, the SWIFT system to target um, potentially, you know, drug smugglers and, and transnational organized criminal groups. But then after September 11th, as I learned yeah. from your book, uh, it was uh, used to kind of go after terrorist networks. And right. then from there, you know, the, the, the government thought, well, why don't we use it against, you know, foreign military, foreign adversaries writ yeah. large. And so it's kind of seemed to snowball. Right. No, and I, I should say this is it intersects with a, an element, uh, a part of my past biography. I, when I was a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs fellow, I was working at the Treasury Department during the anti-money laundering phase of this, mm. um, just before 9-11. And it was it was legitimately fascinating to see Treasury officials who had for a long time resisted this kind of coercive pressure, I think being genuinely surprised at what it was getting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's interesting. But that said, this goes back to this point of sort of unintentionality. Um, the actors that are, everyone is now worried about in terms of weaponized interdependence, namely China and Russia, um, are engaged in much more state-based networks. And this in and of itself might potentially be self-defeating. In other words, it's not like anyone would be surprised if China engaged in weaponized interdependence. Um, China has been increasingly active in, in areas of economic statecraft. It's hard to look at BRI and not conclude this is an effort for them to do it. Similarly with Russia, with respect to Gazprom and, and the sort of transit pipelines um, to Europe. And this doesn't mean that, that therefore targets can relax. It means the targets are ever, you know, possible targets are ever vigilant. And that in and of itself potentially negates the ability to, to engage in weaponized interdependence in the first place. And, and so in other words, what I'm trying to say is that essentially you are going to see states trying to do this over time and they might succeed. Um, Thomas Kavanaugh's chapter in the, the book does a good job of sort of talking about the potential effects of BRI, for example. But that said, the potential recipient states that might participate in these kinds of networks are clearly hyper aware of this possibility and therefore might, you know, engage in efforts to um, hedge against that kind of weaponized interdependence. Um, and th so that's in some ways a sort of interesting natural experiment going forward is whether great powers that are much more overt in terms of, of uh, the state's role in the economy will be able to engage in similar kinds of effects, efforts at weaponized interdependence, or will you see um, you know, essentially a sort of backlash to that. Um, and then the other question is whether you're going to see these sorts of things occur, um, we and or being exploited by the global South and I'm reading Narlikar has a great chapter on that or by NGOs and Charlie Carpenter has a fantastic chapter on that.
Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's absolutely fascinating. It, it, you know, it's making me look at geopolitics in a totally different way. It's one of those like ideal kind of books and, and concepts that mm-hmm. it identifies and defines a trend that I've seen out there, but I've never seen so like explicitly articulated. Thank you to all the authors of of this great volume. I'll post a link to it. Oh, thank you. And again, credit is due to to Henry and Abe, who were the again the the progen- mm-hmm. the, the originators of this concept. Um, and when I first read that article, I was furious at them um, because it was such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Daniel Dresner for chatting with me. And I just want to emphasize uh, how much I I appreciated that book. It really um, changed my perspective on some key issues in in foreign policy and international relations, gave me a new lens with which to understand certain aspects of international relations. And it's not sort of often that that happens. So uh, thank you to uh, the authors. In the coming months, I'll be rolling out more premium episodes for the podcast, but I do want to plug uh, that I had Daniel Dresner on the podcast a few years ago, and he told me his life and career, and we had interesting digressions about the key foreign policy issues in which his life and career intersected, and that episode is available to premium subscribers. To become a premium subscriber, go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Bye.